much for sharing your testimony. Tor, excited about having you uh, up here in a little while to close out our service. Um, I took the liberty uh, of stealing a line from your testimony, uh, and he had sent it to me earlier in the week, and it's what I want to start us with. It's what I want to pray through, and you've got me all like emotionally junked up right now, which isn't great because the verses we're going to look at are all like heavy on gladness and all this kind of stuff, and I, I did find it telling um, that the place where I got most choked up, I, I think it was where you got choked up just talking about the sheer volume of God's grace to you uh, in your brokenness. Um, and, and isn't it an amazing thing that the very thing that can make us cry and feel heavy is the very light that God has brought to us. Here's what, here's what N.A. said. I can now look back and thank God with all my heart for not allowing any of those relationships to work out. I thank him for his loving kindness and mercy, for not giving up on me, for not leaving me in darkness. Even when I was covered with the filth of my sin, he loved me still. His mercy and grace were greater than my sin. Pray with me if you would. Father, there's not a soul that walks into this room or will ever hear that testimony or the passage that we're going to work through tonight that, that is tempted to believe that our sin is too big and it is too great. And yet... The grace of God through Jesus Christ on the cross is infinitely greater. His mercy is infinitely wider. Your goodness to us is beyond comprehension for all of those who would put their faith and trust in Christ. And so, whether that means someone in this room putting their faith and trust in Christ for the very first time and asking for their forgiveness of their sins, or if it means that there is a saint who has been walking with you for five or 50 years and there is a situation that they need to relinquish their control and their ability and their perspective and simply trust your goodness, Father, I pray that you would bring redemption to us tonight. And we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, guys. Well, if you would, please grab your Bible. Uh, one thing that we went ahead uh, and did, um, and hey, thank you for sharing your testimony. Uh, we, we have that videotaped. If you want to hear it again or share it with somebody, you'll have the opportunity to do that. Uh, just keep an eye on our social pipes. Um, but I think Tiffany also has longer versions of your testimony. Is that correct, N.A.? So she's got a few copies of that. If you want to grab one on your way out, you can see Tiffany. She'll be in the foyer afterwards. So we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 3. We're going to look at about 12 verses tonight, verses 1 through 12. And what, what I want you to do first and foremost is just get your eyes on the passage. And the reason I want you to get your eyes on, on the passage is because the way that this lays out, the symmetry of this passage is not just beautiful in and of itself, it shows us the heart of God. But I know that sounds very nerdy and very professor-esque and stuff like this, but here's what I want us to do. Everybody, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1 and verse 3 is what I'm going to read first. Verse 1, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Verse 3, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And as you were sharing, this is what I was thinking about. What we read in, the, in verses 1, in verse 1 and verse 3, is how much God wants you to know who he is. 
And, and there are a million different excuses we can make for not knowing who God is. But God desires for you to know, he says, don't forget my teaching. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. And, and, and this idea of faithfulness, when I'm hearing my sister share her testimony of a father who did this and other men in her life who did this, the moment God is faithful to you in any part of your life. So, so go ahead and just pause now. Let me, let me step away. When has God been faithful to you? It doesn't have to be something massive that you can grab that thing if you want to. It could just be that you made it through last Friday. I, I don't know what was going on. It could have been something heavy. It could have been a relationship. When was one time that you saw God's faithfulness actually show up in your life? Because if you can take that moment, it is the link in a chain between his previous goodness and his promised goodness. That's what faithfulness is. Faithfulness is you presently recognizing God's previous goodness to you, and because it's from him, you are assured of his future goodness to you. And this entire passage is about the goodness of God. Uh, a lot of times when, uh, when I'm talking with the worship team or uh, a number of us are working through a text before we get to a Sunday evening, we, we put it on this little grid. It's called the, the gladness gravity grid. And uh, what that basically means is some passages in Scripture are very glad, right? Some passages in Scripture are heavy. There, there's a lot of gravity. Jesus dying on the cross, him, him praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, that is a gravity-heavy kind of a passage. Well, then a few days go by, and, and he overcomes death, he overcomes the grave, and he stands in marvelous light. That is a gladness passage. What I want you to understand is when we were tracking through this of all of the sermons that we've had thus far in the book of Proverbs, which we're working through, this was the most glad. The most glad. Now, if you are here last week, it was a little bit heavy. A little heavy last week, all right? This week, here's what I want your heart to be prepared for. And let me tell you why. Some of us think good sermons or good, uh, good texts are the ones that hit you in the gut and knock the wind out of you. Okay, I know you people. I know where you came from. I know a lot of your background. I know how you went to church, and that's what a good sermon is. If I'm like crawling to the car, that's what I need. Great, yes, because we're still in sin and we're still broken and we need God to show up. But don't miss out on the beauty of simply how good our God is. That's what this is all about. Verse one, don't forget my teaching. Verse three, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. God's heart for you is to know him and trust him. God's heart for you is to know him and trust him. Now, I pick those two words specifically, know and trust. And if you pay very close attention, you're gonna notice that Will is skipping verses. Now, if I, if, if I don't go back to them, you should leave this church and not come back, right? If you go to a place and they're reading and they're just skipping verses, skip that place. But I want you to notice what verses I leave out for just a minute. We've looked at one and we've looked at three. Now, look at verse five. I want you to see the trusting coming in. Verse five, trust in the Lord with all your heart. 
Do not lean on your own understanding. Drop down to verse 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn from evil. That's God saying, I want you to trust me. But he puts even more into it. Verse 9. How does God want you to trust him? Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. And then finally, one more, verse 11. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. When God disciplines you, can you trust him that it is good and it is for you, your good? Now, Bruner, will you put that back up? God's heart for you is to know him and trust him. All of the beginning of chapter three is about this thing. But what I want you to understand before we go any further is this. When I say God's heart is for you to know him and trust him. I'm not saying God wants you to know him and trust him. That is true. God wants you to really know who he is. He wants you to really trust in who he is for your benefit. But don't get me wrong, it honors God when we do that. It does bring him glory. It does bring him joy when his creation recognizes him as creator. But I don't want you to miss this. God wants you, for you, to know him and trust him because of what will happen if we do. If we really know God, there is something that we would know about him. Jump back to verse 3 in your Bibles, if you would. It'll appear behind me. Let not steadfast love, this is God saying, I want you to know me. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. How much does God want us to know him? Bind them around your neck, steadfast love and faithfulness. Write them on the tablet of your heart. When I was growing up, um, I grew up in the church. When the doors were open, I was there. I I don't know if any of y'all have this experience, but I got, I'm using air quotes, I got saved like a hundred times, right? You would go to church and you would realize I had a really bad week. Am I taking this seriously? Hand up, walk down the aisle, do the whole thing. Then a month or two would go by and I'm like, oh my gosh, what if I don't get this right? I read about hell. I don't want to go to hell. So I get saved at, uh, I, I get saved watching one of those scary videos that the youth pastors used to play. And then I go to a Billy Graham crusade. I get saved there too. These are all air quotes, right? But, but so many times in my prayer life, I was like, God, You are over all things. I read in your Bible. I read how often you show up. I read how often you speak. I read how often you heal. Can I just see that? Can I just experience that? I know that it is not the norm. I know that there are a handful of names in this book and a much longer list of names in heaven. But can I be one of the names of the people who see you revealed? Y'all ever feel that way? I mean, everybody was 12, right? Okay? You ever feel that way? Well, there's this one passage in Scripture where God does this very thing. And he says, you know what? I want you to know me so much. I want you to trust me so much that I am not going to trust this message to anyone except for myself. This is Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 through 7. I'll let you flip there now. It'll be behind me, but I'll let you flip there if you want to. Exodus 34, verses five to seven. And here Moses is. God has a big job for Moses. And if he's gonna do it, he has to know who God is and he has to trust God 100% of the way. So here is how God does this. Exodus 34, verse five to seven. The Lord descended in the cloud 
and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So God shows up, he's near Moses, and now God basically says, let me tell you who I am. You can look at creation and you can get an idea. You can look at my previous works and you can have a pretty good picture of who I am. But from my own mouth, Moses, to be written down for all time, for my people, let me tell you who I am. Verse six, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And then there's a switch. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. God gives a perfect description of who he is. And he gives both sides of the coin. I am slow to anger and gracious and merciful, steadfast, abounding, but I don't ignore sin. Okay? He he does it. He gives a balanced representation of himself. But when somebody walks up to you, or when you walk up to someone else, and you say, hey, tell me about yourself. Tell me who you are. Can I just tell you that there there are some things that flow very quickly from your mind? It's usually stuff like, my name is fill in the blank. I do fill in the blank for a living. I am married, or I am in this college. I have these children, or this is my mate. There are certain things that live on the front of your mind, and the reason they live there is because they are the truest things to you of you. You understand what I'm saying? The reason somebody walks up to you and says, hey, tell me about yourself, those first things that come out, the reason they come first is because they are the truest things of you to you. God will by no means clear the guilty. He visits, he visits, he visits the iniquity and sin and he deals with it. But what does he begin with? What does he start with? What is most true? I'm merciful and gracious, full of steadfast love and faithfulness. So in verse three, when he says, bind that reality around your neck, write it on your heart, God is saying, I want you to know me. And then he pivots in these following verses and he says, I want you to trust me too. Now, if you're a note taker, here's your opportunity. There are three ways in this text that God wants you to trust him. Three ways that you should be trusting God today. Verse five and verse seven. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Verse seven. Be not wise in your own eyes. What is God saying here? God wants you to trust him more than you trust yourself. God wants you to trust him more than you trust yourself. Now, if you've been going to church for any period of time, you're like, hey, I'm not writing that one down. That is a well-duh point, Will. But what is tucked into this and what is tucked into all three of the things that God wants you to grow in your trust of him is this. None of the things that God wants you to trust in him are automatic. Let me explain. We are a culture of automators, Okay, I have an iPhone. I used to have a Droid. iPhone is basically the, it's, it's a beautiful straitjacket. 
My droid could do all sorts of different stuff. I could have a different operating system on it. Tiffany, you still need to get an iPhone because we can't text you because it's not blue, it's green, and then half of them don't work. Okay. When I had my droid, I had so much freedom, right? I, I, I could pick different things. I could change different things. But we are a culture of automators. Whenever I, I schedule with somebody, I send this one little link to them. If we're getting coffee, if we're grabbing lunch, if we're doing in-deep counseling session, I send this one little link out into the world. And people get that one little link. Many of you have done it. And you click on it. And I don't have to do a thing. And it reads my calendar for me. And it says, here's when Will's available. And then you pick. And do you know what it does? It sends you a text message that says, hey, I'm really excited to get together with you. I didn't send that. I was excited when I wrote it six months ago. But I didn't text you that. I love y'all. I am excited to meet with you. But it's automated. It sends you an email reminding you. I didn't do that. I don't have time for that. I automate it. So many of the things in our lives we automate because we're busy, we're overwhelmed, we got all this kind of stuff. It's easier, but we lose pieces of who we are when we automate. And when God writes this, when he wants you to trust him more than you trust yourself, what he's saying, hey, N.A., you keep going after all of these guys. And after everyone, you say, I'm not doing that again. But as soon as somebody shows up, Here's what we tell ourselves. I've learned. I've been walking with the Lord. I'm going to church. I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying. I'm doing, I'm doing, I'm doing it. So I know what to do. Wisdom is not automatic. Knowing the will of God is not automatic. Walking into a situation and feeling like you automatically know what to do, unless you're going to point to a verse that makes it very clear, is the height of arrogance. We never get to a point where we read enough, pray enough, or are in community enough to not Go to God when there is a question in front of us. But we are a culture of automators. Second thing that God wants of us, and you'll see this in verse 9, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. God wants you to trust him with your money. I told y'all last week the big three in the Bible, like the ways people get sideways, are sex, relationships, and money, but money wasn't in it. Well, here it is. Like, it's in the Bible everywhere. What is happening here? Well, the problem is we're a culture of, uh, we're a culture of automators. This is not automatic. I, I, I tithe to the church uh, using an automatic draft. Like, I see it go out, but it happens automatically. The reason I do it, I say, is because I can do it at the first of the month. I don't want to forget, certainly don't want to be in debt to the Lord, right? Like, we, we all have these, like, little guilt modes that we run through, but I don't even feel it. It's just gone. And here, what God is saying is, trust me with the first. So, what that might look like for me, that maybe don't automate, maybe do automate, whatever, but what if I sat down with my kids and with my wife at the beginning of every month and I said, God has been good to us. He has been generous to us. How do we want to be generous as a family? What if you're a college student and you live with a roommate or two and instead of just paying rent and paying bills and stuff like that, you all get together and you pray and you say, this is the neighborhood that we live in. How can we put on display the very generosity that God has shown us in Christ? When it goes on, it says, honor the Lord with your wealth. What it's saying, this is my favorite thing as a youth pastor. It's saying if you've got a pool, now the church has a pool. Isn't that awesome? It's saying if you've got a house, now the church has another house where small groups can happen. What, what is happening here is God is saying, take the me out of our possessions. That is not your car. It is not your house. If you really want to push on our stuff, it is not your time. 
It is not your energy. It is not your day. Everything that we have, God is saying, trust me with it. And finally, there's one more, and we see this in, in verse 11. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary. God wants you to trust him to correct you properly. Um, I got into a lot of trouble as a kid. Um, I kind of spread it out. Like, I didn't always want to be in trouble with my parents because that would go south. So sometimes I was in trouble with my parents. Sometimes I was in trouble with my coach. Sometimes I was in trouble with teachers. I, I, I was an equal opportunity transgressor, is what I'm trying to say. And, and if I look back on my life, there were a number of times when I was properly disciplined. Hey, hands on knees, eyes to eyes when you're with a kid, right? Hey, buddy, look. This is what God has done for us, and this is how you're acting, and it's causing me to feel like you don't really know who God is, right? But then there's the other side of it, too. There's a dark side of it. There's getting pulled up by your shirt and tossed the other side. There's getting berated in front of your peers and classmates. There are all kinds of ways that we can be disciplined inappropriately, and I would be willing to bet many of you can remember that even if you were 7 years old, 12 years old, 15 years old. What God is telling us is, when I discipline you, I am doing it for your good. And discipline in the Bible really goes in one of two places. We can't be disciplined the way that a child is. You know, you, you lose your uh, TV privileges or uh, whatever it is. You know, you, you get disciplined, um, chided. But discipline is also the, the kind of discipline where you're like, no, I'm going to run three times a week, or I, I'm going to go to the gym. I'm gonna do, both of these things are discipline, and the point of both is for us to be trained in godliness, for us to become more like God. But that is an awful lot of trust, to trust God in every one of those things. Now, here's my question. What verses have I not read yet? Who's been paying attention? You can't answer because I already know. What? Come on. Let's just be a youth group for a minute. Y'all know my roots. What I have not read a single one of this type of verse. What is it? I haven't read a single even verse yet. Every verse that I have read is odd. And the reason that I held off on that is because this entire passage reads almost like wedding vows. It's this back and this forth. Every odd verse is God saying, this is what I want from you. But he's not just saying he wants it from you for him. He wants it from you for you. And then every even passage is God saying, I want to pour out goodness to you. I want to be generous to you. I want you to see how great and how glorious the graciousness of God is. Don't handicap me. Don't tie my hands behind my back by not trusting me and by not knowing me. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to read the even verses and I'm just going to read them slow because if you are a Christian, big highlight, big underline, if you are a Christian, this is God's heart. For you. Verse 2 For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Long life, but not just a long life, a long life with peace. Verse 4 Why does God want his steadfast love and faithfulness near us? Why does he want them, uh, those things bound to us? Verse 4 So that you'll find favor and good success in the sight of God and of man. Why does God want me to trust in him with all of my heart? Why doesn't he want me to lean on my own understanding? Verse six, so that in all of your ways, you would acknowledge him 
and he would make your paths straight. This is what God wants for you. Why does God not want me to be wise in my own eyes? Verse seven, because if I turn away from evil and if I trust him, verse eight, it will bring healing to my flesh and refreshment to my bones. Why honor God with my wealth and with my stuff? Verse 10, so that your barns will be filled with plenty. This is gonna make some good Baptist struggle. And your vats will be bursting with wine. See, Will, it said bursting so that it goes on the floor. It's just an example. You're not supposed to drink it. Look, man, we need a good theology of enjoyment of the things that God has given us. And what I'm trying to tell you right now is God is almost challenging us to see how good he is. Why in verse 11 does he say you can trust that I am going to appropriately correct you and discipline you? Verse 12, because the Lord reproves, that means corrects, him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. I want you to know that I am getting down on my knees. I am coming down as Christ came down, meeting you eye to eye to say, I love you too much to let you continue doing this. It's hurting you. It is killing you. And it's killing me to see happen. I love you. I delight in you. All of these even passages fill up a bowl of the goodness of God that is endless and bottomless that he wants for you. It's, it's really too good to be true. The problem is that sin has taught us to be skeptical of goodness. Sin teaches you to be skeptical of goodness. My sin, your sin, their sin, the sin of the world, we become skeptical of goodness. It always seems like there's a carrot on the end of a stick. And when I tell you God wants to be good to you, your mind runs one of two ways. If you're being skeptical due to sin, you're saying, well, if God wants to be good to me, he certainly could handle it. And why am I standing in the mess that I'm standing in right now? Or you could say, easy will, it's starting to sound a little prosperity-esque, okay? We're gonna need to check that. God wants me to suffer. God wants me to... Yeah, he wants you to suffer, but not unto just suffering. He wants you to suffer so that you would realize he is enough so that you won't go to other things, so that you will find in him more than this world could ever offer. The reason it's hard at church to hear that this is what God wants for you is because you've been left behind by people that you knew and trusted. I mean, You've been hurt by people that you know and trust. You've been used by people that you knew and trust. You've been vulnerable and then betrayed by people that you knew and trusted. You've been corrected harshly, maybe even abused by people that you've known and trusted. But here's what you got to hear. That is not Jesus. You see, we pick up all of the skepticism in the world and God says, this wasn't my world. The, the way that you experience it is not how I designed it. It is not how I planned it. Look, you may have felt left behind, but Jesus says, I'm never gonna leave you nor forsake you, right? You're the little sheep that's wandering off and I am after you. You may have been hurt, but Jesus binds up the brokenhearted. You may have been used, but Jesus says, I will outserve you. My spirit will outserve you every moment of every day made yourself vulnerable and been betrayed, Jesus says that he'll lay down his life and sacrifice it for you. Have you been corrected harshly? Jesus says, take my yoke upon you because I am gentle and lowly. 
You will never feel that rod of correction from me. But what is crazy about this is that God is still good even when you're not. Like, all of these even passages are true of God when none of the odd passages are true of you, all right? You gotta track with me on this to make sure that you can appreciate it. God is always desiring to give these things even when you are not living up to your side of the vow. Now, I need y'all to be nerds with me for just one moment in this text. Some of you get excited about that. Some of you tune out for that. I'm gonna ask you to do it twice. This is once. I just need you to be a little bit of a nerd for a second. The reason that this is important is because God's grace to us is asymmetrical. All right, let me explain what I mean. Asymmetrical. I think there's only one S in asymmetrical. Yes? Okay, this, this will actually work as a very good illustration. All right? That word's a little heavy on one side. It's a little embarrassing right now for more reason than one. All right? Say, so, aren't you glad that we talk about grace? All right? When I tell you that God's grace is asymmetrical, what I'm saying is it's lopsided. It's uneven. You can imagine a tree growing and the left-hand side is barren and it's twiggy and the right-hand side is full of leaves. Owen Wilson, his nose. That is an asymmetrical fact. He's fine. He's never gonna hear this. He's got millions of dollars. Owen Wilson has an asymmetrical fact. It is lopsided. It is off to one side. Every time you see him in a movie now, you're gonna be reminded of God's grace and I am so completely okay with that. God's grace toward you is asymmetrical. It is one directional. You, this is the key to understanding the gospel and living it out. You cannot reciprocate God's grace. You cannot show grace to God the way God shows grace to you because you got nothing to forgive. You've got nothing to overlook when it comes to God. So whenever he does anything benevolent, anything good, anything kind, anything patient to you, his grace toward you is being asymmetrical. Do you remember uh, when you were a kid and there was one candy bar and you and somebody else, you all did the same thing. One person broke and one person picked, right? There was a breaker and there was a picker. And you always wanted to be the picker. Like, who picks breaker? Like, that's not the smart kid, okay? This illustration is as though grace was a, a, a Kit Kat bar. The reason I'm picking Kit Kat, I could go with Hershey's too, is they're so perfectly evenly cut, right? A Kit Kat, it's even fun to snap a little. It's as, thank you. Back to me, Kit Kat, all right? It's as though God walked up with the candy bar of his grace and he broke it in half evenly and said, this doesn't make sense. And then he broke off one and then he broke a piece off of one and then he just handed you the entire thing. You cannot reciprocate the grace of God and that creates something in you. It creates in your conscience a vacuum. And that vacuum is created by God for something good. A number of years ago for Christmas, our family decided that we were gonna go on a trip instead of do regular Christmas. 
uh, Tor is going to come up and do the benediction. Not yet, you're good. Tor is going to come up and, and do the benediction. Tor is from Norway. I don't know if y'all noticed that from NA's testimony. That's where our family was going to go. We're going to go to Norway. We're going to visit my sister. So. I looked at my wife, my wife looked at me, and she was like, what if we don't do presents as we're going on a trip? And I'm like, that's exactly what I was thinking. I actually think it every Christmas, but this is great. We'll, we'll actually run with it. Here's what my wife said. You can correct me if I'm wrong, baby. We're not gonna do gifts this Christmas. Here's what Will heard. We're not gonna do gifts this Christmas. And then Christmas morning hit. And I think the stuff that goes in a stocking is a gift. My wife does not, th- I don't know what she calls them. Little grace, pixie dust things. I don't know. So here we are on Christmas morning. Am I telling an accurate story thus far? Okay, what am I doing wrong? Yeah, but I didn't hear that part, all right? I was busy praying for our family or something. So, so we come down on Christmas, and here it is, Tiggy Fat Stocking. Ames, Thad, Ellis, skip a little, Will, fat stocking. And my wife has a flat sock just dangling from the little, whatever you call it, fireplace. Every time I pulled a gift for me, my kids didn't care, whatever. Every time I pulled a gift out of the stocking, I wasn't like, Awesome, beef jerky, awesome, super glue. I was like, thank you so much for the beef jerky. As she's sitting there with an empty stocking. Thank you, thank you, thank you. When God gives us unreciprocated, asymmetrical grace, it creates in us this empty stocking feeling. How can you want me to have abundant days? How can you want me to have favor? How can you want all of this? I got nothing to give you. I can't put anything in your stocking. And every time I pull it out, I have this little bit of guilt. I have this little bit of weight. And what Christians do, or or maybe people who think they're Christians, what we do wrong is we look at that and we say, I've got to try harder. I've got to be better. I've got to pay this thing for it. I've got to figure this out. But that is not why God creates that vacuum of grace. He doesn't. I'll tell you why in a second. But first, I want to address three questions that you probably have if you've been paying attention. If you've been watching this text and if you've been listening to me, here are three things that probably exist in your head. How can God do this? How can he love that big and still be morally good, morally right, and just? How can God show this much good to somebody who has done this little good and it still be right for him to do so? That'd be the first question that I asked. The second question I would ask is, isn't this the prosperity gospel that you have told us not to buy into? And then finally, What does God even get out of this? How can God do this and be morally good, right, and just? Y'all did really good last time. This will be the last time that I ask you to do this. I need you to be a little nerdy with me one more time. There is a word that you need to know. It's Christianity 101, Doctrine 101, and that word is imputation. I didn't put it up there. Probably would have misspelled it anyway, all right? The word is imputation, I-M-P-U-T-A-T-I-O-N. What it ultimately means is that the, let me tell you what it isn't. If God imparted to us, not imputed, this is what we have. If God imparted to you the righteousness of Christ, 
you would no longer struggle with, why am I a Christian that still likes sinning? You wouldn't struggle with that. If he had imparted to you the character of Christ, if he had imparted to you the desires that Christ had, you would not be wondering why you still struggle with sin or that sin, that deed, that action, whatever else it is. But God didn't impart. He imputed the righteousness of Christ. And what that ultimately means is he gave you a status that you did not earn. He gave you a right standing that you did not earn. Imputation means God looked at you and said, you missed the mark, but I'm going to give you an A plus on the exam anyway. I'm not even going to give you an A plus. I'm going to give you a 100 on the exam, even though you made an abysmal 45. That is what imputation is. And it's why so many people struggle with the grace of the gospel, because it is not fair. Grace is not fair. Here's, here's where we find this doctrine. You can find it everywhere, but I want to show you one place. 1 Corinthians 1 Verse 30 through 31. If you got lap Bibles, I'm going to give you a second. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 30 through 31. Now, I, I'm going to read this to you out of the CSB because I like the way that it puts it. It is from him, it is from God that you are in Christ Jesus. I hear pages, I'm going to let you turn. I hate it when people are like, turn to this. And they're like, you get no time. And you're like, I'm a better Christian. I can usually find it faster. I don't want any of that. Especially when we're talking about grace. 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus. It's not from you. Who became wisdom from God for us. Our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Just leave that that up there for a minute if you would. Our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. What this verse is saying is that God on your behalf, made you righteous. He made you seen by him as all right. And I don't mean A-L right, I mean A-L-L space right. God sees you as though you were all right. Nothing wrong, nothing broken, nothing out of joint, no evil thoughts, no evil deeds, no evil words. How God sees me this way is the greatest of mysteries. How can God look at me in this moment, and for those of you who are believers, how can he look at you in this moment and say 100% right? And yet that is exactly what the Bible says has happened. He has given us righteousness. That is the imputed righteousness of, of Christ. But it doesn't even stop there. God continues to give more. He gives sanctification. It's not just that God looks and says, A-L-L space right, that you are all right. It it is him going a step further and saying, even though I'm giving you credit for being all right, I know that you're not because I still see your sins. I still see your deeds. So I'm gonna give you my own spirit to step-by-step, prayer-by-prayer, church service-by-church service, community group-by-community group, evangelism opportunity-by-evangelism opportunity. I am going to make you more like my son. And then he goes a step further and he says, I'm gonna redeem you. I am ultimately going to save you from this impossible treadmill of trying to live for Christ, trying to live up to the righteousness that's been given to me through the imputation of Christ. And I will deliver you from this body of flesh and one day where you live and what you want will be in absolute alignment with the Father and with the Son. That's what God offers. And can I just tell you, even before my mic went out, I didn't want to be up here tonight. I didn't. Preaching is my favorite thing to do on the planet. 
I didn't want to preach tonight. The, the whole week has been one step forward and seven steps back in every area of my life is how it's felt. I just wanted to be in the chair. I wanted NA to just keep going, like just keep going. And I'll come up and be like, isn't God good? Amen, let's go. But when I read this, when I read that on my lowest of days, on my weakest of days, on my most sin-ridden of days, God says, hey, Will, I'm still seeing you in the righteousness of Christ. When, when he says, and I've got good news, I'm still making you into the image of Christ. I've got better news. You will arrive at the feet of Christ. It makes it doable. It makes it possible to run hard after Christ because God is ready and willing to be generous. But there's even more. Because if you take every even verse and you say, Will, if I were to offer you a long life and it was gonna be full of peace, it, it, if I was gonna give you success, like whenever you had a decision or whenever you had a vision for something like that to me, of all the things I would pick, I, it wouldn't be a long life. If every vision that I had, it just came to be and it was successful. I told my wife, like, why do we only get one life to live? There's so many things I wanna do. There's not enough time. There's not enough energy. Why, why can't I have nine days in a week? It, of all the things that are offered to us in, this eve, in these even passages, do you know what's even better than that? God seeing you in the righteousness of Christ. If all of those things were lined up, I would pass them by simply to have a difficult life that was short and not full of peace, where none of my endeavors worked out, where all of my paths seemed crooked and they didn't make it, but God saw me in the righteousness of Christ. That's why this is not a prosperity gospel. The reason this is not a prosperity gospel is because the prosperity gospel isn't prosperous enough. That's why. The prosperity gospel says your best life now, today. I don't want it now and today. I want it for a thousand, thousand years. I, I don't want it for January or February. I want it for millennia after millennia after millennia. And what God is saying is, instead of imparting to you this, I'm gonna impute this to you so that you know, even in your brokenness, even in your weakness, I am here, I am there. I'm not going anywhere. You're never going to be alone. Then when I realize that that is the way God sees me, I don't even need all of these things that are incredible that God wants to give. God wants all of these good things for me, but when I see him, when I know him, when I trust him, they're not enough. And Paul figured this out and gave us one of the best passages in the New Testament, Philippians 3. Philippians 3, seven to nine. But everything that was gained to me, all of these things that are listed in all of the evens, which are good, they're just not as good as Jesus. All of these things that were a gain to me I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. Line up everything this world can offer, and Paul says, but if Jesus isn't in the category, I would leave them all behind. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in the view of the surpassing value of, here's what God wanted for us in verse one and three, knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung. All of those things poo on the floor compared to the righteousness of Christ so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And here it is again, not having a righteousness of my own. 
from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. God gives and gives and gives, and then he gives of himself, which brings us to the final thing. What does God even get out of this? Now, I could go verse after verse after verse, but let me just simplify it. When God shows incredible mercy and grace to incredibly broken people, and if that's you tonight, and you need to come toward him, you need to repent, you need to make yourself right with him, I'll be in the back over here praying, the crumb packers will be over there in the back. Don't walk out not having that done. When God does this, he puts on display just how asymmetrical his grace is to every creature that has ever lived for all time. He puts it on display in front of every human eye that will one day stand in front of him. He puts it on display against all of the evil forces of the enemy. Every angel sees it. Everything in all creation sees how asymmetrical the grace of God is for all time. And I told you a second ago that there was a reason that we feel this, this vacuum, this empty socketness uh, in our soul when we just take good from God and receive good from God and don't deserve it. See, this text is all about Christ's perfection, not ours, and God's bent towards graciousness. But he doesn't want you pulling out of the stocking of his goodness, recognizing you can't give him anything with tears in your eyes. He wants you receiving his goodness and simply saying, wow, God, how can you do this again today? How is your mercy new every single morning? How can I take this and not have joy on my face and a song in my heart? How can this be true and me not share it with the world around us? That's what the vacuum is for. I haven't done a ton of applications, so I'm really just giving you one, and this is it. God's grace toward us is asymmetrical but our grace towards one another should be asymmetrical and reciprocal. It's pretty nerdy, right? Let me explain. My best friend and I share an, uh, share an office. His name's John. He, he appreciates um, being called out. He's sitting in the back corner. And we're getting ready to go into the new building. We're gonna have a new office. I'm so glad that I just made people look at you. And he, he's basically saying all the time, like, well, I'm gonna miss you so much. Like, how am I gonna get by? I don't know how I'm gonna, he doesn't say that. Our friendship is asymmetrical. It's not a 50-50. My relationship, my wife is not a 50-50 and it's not a 100-100 if you think that's where I'm going. I think that's a joke too. Sometimes he's carrying the weight of it and sometimes I am. And my relationship with my wife we went to a funeral, like that's where I'm supposed to shine, right? And she's going around counseling people like she's got a degree in stuff and I'm just like in the corner. She was the one carrying the energy. The other night, I'm supposed to be the energy guy that's late at night and I wasn't, I didn't have enough. I wasn't meeting her 50-50. She was carrying 80%. Why is there a vacuum in us when we see the graciousness of God? Because you and I, think we want our relationships to be fair. You do not. 
You do not want a 50-50 with your business partner. You do not want a 50-50 with your roommate. You do not want a 50-50 with your best friend. And you do not want a 50-50 with your spouse. What you want is for your grace to each other to be allowed to be asymmetrical. You want to be able to be 20% sometimes. And you want to be able to be 80% sometimes. And, And you want to be able to say, I can't do it today you want to be able to say I can't do it this week and you want them to be able to say the same thing to you the reason God gives us that vacuum is not so that we would try to earn it back with him it's so that we would pay that grace forward to the people around us and display who he is you don't want a fair marriage you want a gracious marriage. You don't want a fair life. Be glad God didn't give you that if you're in Christ. You want a life that is full of grace. And that's what Christ offers today. It's what he offered yesterday. And it's what he will offer as long as we are seeking him. So tonight, maybe you need to ask for forgiveness. Maybe you need to have a rethinking in your mind. Maybe you need to go back and receive prayer. But whatever it is, don't leave tonight without meeting a God of mercy and incredible grace. Stand with me and let's worship together.